This episode of the Juicebox Podcast is sponsored by Gvoke, the world's only liquid-stable glucagon. Gvoke is a prescription injection for the treatment of very low blood sugar in adults and kids with diabetes ages 2 and above. Do not use if you have a specific type of adrenal or pancreatic tumor, starvation, or chronic low blood sugar. Side effects may include nausea, hypoglycemia, vomiting, headache, hyperglycemia, and injection site swelling, itching, and stomach pain. Being prepared is always important, but right now, it is at the forefront of all of our minds. Did you know stress in erratic schedules can increase the risk of scary lows? Gvoke pre-filled syringe is the first liquid glucagon that is pre-mixed, pre-filled, and pre-measured, so it's ready to go. If you need Gvoke PFS and can't physically get to your doctor's office, there is still a way to get it. You can request a prescription online and pharmacists at PillPack by Amazon Pharmacy will reach out to your doctor for a prescription. They will then ship your Gvoke PFS to your home at no additional cost, just the cost of your copay. Please note, at this time, this option is available for people with commercial insurance only. You can learn more, including a link to the important safety information about Gvoke PFS at www.gvokeglucagon.com forward slash ordering dash Gvoke. That might be hard to remember, so I'll put a link in the show notes. When I first suggested that Paul come on the show, I didn't know anything about his history. So I started at the beginning, asking him, how did you get involved in this kind of work? And the answer took us on a ride that I just did not expect. I really found it fascinating to pick through someone's life and see where they started and what they thought they were going to do and find out about some of their first jobs that have, you know, seemingly nothing to do with what they end up doing. So sit back and relax, and we're going to find out how a young boy from New York ends up being the CEO of the company that brings the world's first liquid stable glucagon to market. A glucagon that is pre-mixed, pre-measured, and ready to go. It's kind of fascinating. One last thing, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise, and to always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan. Yeah, there was just like, there was like air behind you, and I was like, oh God, it sounded like you were on the highway. <laughs> well, so where our building is located, we're surrounded by train tracks. We're on the 16th floor, but you might hear some train noise in the background. Don't worry, a, uh, a fighter jet will fly past Dexcom once in a while when I'm speaking with them. So. <laughs> Adds a little flavor. Well, we chose to put our office close to the train station so everybody could have an easy commute. So it's a nice idea. Comes with its yeah. Hey, can you take credit for that, or do you, or uh, was it not your idea? And you just take credit for it? Oh you? no, it was very, no. It was, I've done it in two companies now. It's very purposeful. No kidding. Very purposeful. Yeah, we promise everybody we'll be within four blocks of a train train station or L stop. That's really excellent. That is, and you guys are located in Chicago. Downtown, we're one block south of the river on LaSalle. Nice. Is that, and by the way, we are recording already.
I'm Paul Edick. I'm the CEO of Xeris Pharmaceuticals. Obviously, we're just talking as we picked up the call, and Paul didn't know we were recording, but now that he knows, we can just kind of keep going. It's funny, now that you said that, I want to go in a direction, and I guess I just will. Are you uh, not a young man, Paul? Not right out of college, I'm guessing? <laughs> no, I've, I've been in the pharmaceutical business. This is my 41st year. I just turned 64 in July. Okay, all right. I've been doing this a long time. So things that other people may not think about, like I'm going to put a building up and we're going to get a company rolling and it should be near transportations so that hardworking people don't then have to schlep home and get, you know, like, and cause problems from that's the stuff you learn over time, I imagine. Yeah. So if you, a lot of companies, they locate in office parks in the suburbs Mm -hmm. And people are landlocked and there's no real energy. It's just in the building. We, you know, I looked in the suburbs and there's all the normal land, you know, buildings. But when you come into the city, you can locate in buildings where it's vibrant. There's a lot going on. There are people and movement and energy. And the commute is actually shorter by train for most people than driving to buildings in an office park in the suburbs. So it it helps with the energy of the company, but it also makes it easier for people and therefore you attract people better. I'm incredibly interested about how it gets set up, but I guess I have to I have to go backwards before I can jump into forwards. So um let, let's start slow. Where did you grow up? I grew up, <clears throat> excuse me, in a small town in a in a dairy dairy country in upstate New York. So for, for people who are in New York City, upstate New York is Poughkeepsie. Um, I grew up about two hours north of Syracuse, just just a little bit before the St. Lawrence Seaway. Gotcha. Very rural, very small. What did your parents do? When I was a little kid, my dad was um, worked in a in Chicago pneumatic, which was a tooling company. Um, my mom worked in a shoe factory. I ask because... You know, growing up in a small town that's, you know, pretty removed from what I would think of as big business and and coming from, you know, your parents doing what they did. You know, I think of myself and I always used to say to people, like, it's hard to imagine something other than what you know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I True. you know, True. I mean? like yeah. I, I know people who, Absolutely. who, who want to be professional athletes, but when you look at them, they grew up around a professional athlete. So it seemed like a reasonable thing. When I was young, I wanted to write. But that didn't seem like a viable way to make a living because the people I lived around were, you know, kind of hardworking blue collar people. And I don't think that writing something seemed like a, a you know, a reasonable way to make a living. So I, I, so I'm fascinated about how you made it from there to here. I wonder, did it happen in high school or not till college? Where did you start thinking about business or were you just trying to get out of a small town or how are you feeling? Yeah, um, great question. I started as a little, little kid in central New York, um, and then we moved to this town called Lowellville in upstate New York. After my dad, finally, he got a degree out of Syracuse University, became a teacher. Um, my mom was able to get out of the shoe factory, became a secretary. All I, I, you know, in terms of aspirations from a career perspective, I don't really recall having any. I, I think my aspiration was to do better than my parents. I grew up in a second-generation Italian immigrant family. Um, you know, my mom couldn't speak English when she started grammar school. I was an athlete 
and I had opportunities to go to college for free in a lot of places around the country because of athletics. And I was a pretty good student, but I ended up going to a small um, private college called Hamilton College in central New York. I know it. And, you know, I was um, coming out of Hamilton, it was time to get a job. And I, I interviewed on campus, got a job with Procter & Gamble. My entry into the pharmaceutical business was accidental, to say the least. Yeah. See, it's interesting because you're describing, you know, I'm, I'm 48, so I'm not of your generation, but I'm probably not too far along. But my, my parents definitely had that vibe about them, the idea that you were just trying to do a little better tomorrow than you did today and, and kind of get, get through it. There was no grandiose ideas like, this is the thing I'm going to be one day. You're just like, I need to get up in the morning, go to school, learn something, go to college, learn something, get a job. You know, that I, It's funny how I don't think people now think like that as much. Like I think they have plans for themselves and ideas. Oh, and, you know. no question. Yeah. No question. Every, every, every kid I talk to or every young person I talk to, you know, how do I get to X, Y, Z? And, you know, I, my, the first thing I say to say to people is keep your head down, do your job and the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. I'm always amused by my, my wife will tell this great story about she hired this person and after 30 days, they came to her very earnestly and asked when they'd be getting a raise. And my <laughs> wife says, well, you, you don't even understand what the job is yet. You've only been here for 30 days. She said, I've never been late. And, <laughs> and my wife was like, oh, well, keep, keep, the, you keep that up. Okay. Thanks. Like get out of here. And she's like, I, she came home and she's like 26 year old person doesn't really even understand what her job is yet. Once a raise once the, and I was like, yeah, good, good luck yeah. with all that. Um, that's, that's really excellent. So, so your parents weren't as much, they were immigrants more than, than like, so I say, it's funny. I applied today's standards to it and I just assumed like that's the job they had, but they were working their way up as well. Yeah. My grandparents came over, you know, on the proverbial boat from Italy, right? My mom was born in the States. But in those days, they lived in an Italian community in a small town, right. um, and they spoke Italian. Interestingly enough, um, and we always tell these stories, but my parents, my grandparents refused to speak Italian around us kids because they lived in a world where they were discriminated against. Uh -huh. They didn't want us to speak that language or even have an accent. You know, fast forward to when we're teenagers and adults and we're kicking ourselves that we don't have two languages. <laughs> right? I mean, that's is how things have changed. But theirs was a safety idea more than anything. Like, they probably saw it as an impediment to your success if people thought of you as an immigrant. Correct. And assimilation. Yeah. Right? There, there, was, a, there was an absolute drive to become and to assimilate. It, it was fascinating. Yeah. That's excellent. It's really... It's fascinating because I don't think that we, I just don't think we talk about this a lot anymore. And, and this is really what our conversation today is about, is trying to figure out how you got to where you are now and, and what your what your focus was. So you're saying, and I, I don't think this is uncommon at all, but in college, what did you major in first? I started my freshman year as a pre-med student. Um, I had done you know, National Honor Society, the whole nine yards in high school. So I had great grades. I was also a two-sport athlete. And college was a little bit different. And I, my very first semester, I got a C in calculus. So I was done as a pre-med student. 
And so I, uh, I switched to psychology. Paul, smartest kid in his class uh, up there in New York, didn't didn't shake out as well when you. Got yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was interesting. Um, the biggest reason I got a C in calculus was because I was still using a slide rule, and if you even know what that is, if people, um, and most of the kids in class had moved on to calculators, the very first Texas Instruments calculator. My parents couldn't afford it, so I was still using a slide rule, and I didn't finish most of the tests on time. No kidding. That's uh, yeah. That's so it wasn't for lack of knowing the information. It was yeah. I couldn't get it done. You didn't have the right tools. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. How many letters home said I need a calculator, or did did your? Oh yeah. <laughs> no, that was a one. That was one conversation. It didn't go very well. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, did you ask for a calculator and then your mom told you about being born in America, first generation Italian? And did you <laughs> no, I got the, don't you have a job and can't you work more hours? Isn't that interesting? You know, my son is a sophomore in college right now and he goes to a similar type of school. Actually, Hamilton is one of the schools he tried to, you know, he reached to. Um, and so he's in a similar size school. He likes a smaller school. He wanted um, liberal arts. He didn't quite know what he wanted to do yet. And when I ask him about helping out, he says that his job is good grades in baseball. I'm, I'm now, I'm now yeah. wishing I could put him on the phone with your mother. <laughs> well, it was interesting, you know, to make not to belabor the point, but I had offers for four-year full scholarships to three or four different big-time universities for sports. I chose to go to Hamilton College, which was Division Three, and they couldn't. It was non-scholarship. So I actually had to pay to go to college. Yeah. And that was a decision I made that, you know, from my parents' perspective, okay, well, you got to pay for it. Right. Because they sure as heck couldn't. Yeah, no kidding. I, I do think that my son Cole did the same thing. He, that he had opportunities to go play baseball at places that were, in all, in all honesty, just schools where you would have played baseball. You would come out with some sort of a degree, but I don't know how great it would have been. And he said, I'm too good of a student for that. I, I have to go somewhere and get a get like a real solid education. I was like, okay, great. You yeah. Get over there. But the same thing, you know, there's not quite as much uh, in the way of offering of money when you, when you make that decision. Um, exactly. Okay, Paul. So you're in college, you're, you're kind of jumping around finding your major and everything and finding your level really like looking for where you fit and where you're good. And mm -hmm. did you find, did you fall into business at that point or did you finish with a more of a mathematics track? How did you handle it? No, I, I actually, I moved to psychology. I, w I was fascinated by learning and memory. I actually did, you know, my sophomore and, sophomore and junior years, I did research in learning and memory. So not behavioral psychology, but more the, the learning aspect of psychology. I loved it. And my research was actually published. And I graduated with a liberal arts degree. You know, I took a bunch of other courses. Took a lot of religion courses, um, political science. You know, and you had to take statistics if you're a psychology major. So liberal arts degree. And then I started interviewing for jobs on campus. In interestingly, because of the research I was doing, I was getting extra credit. I finished in three and a half years. I was one of the few people that was available to be hired in the spring because um, I wasn't going to school anymore. And I got a job with Procter & Gamble as a sales rep in their case food division. Isn't that something? You just you thinned the herd by being available sooner. 
Yeah, and because I was doing independent study during the summers, um, got extra credit, and uh, I was done. No kidding. That's interesting. So, so you head off to Procter & Gamble as a young man. W- was your expectation that day where they hired you, and you were probably out of your mind excited, d- did you even know why you were going there, what you were doing, or were you just like, this is a job? You hit the nail right on the head. It was a job. I, you know, I didn't know who Procter & Gamble was. I, I learned who they were. It was, you know, great training and all that, but I big company and I had a sales job and it was, you know, in, in upstate New York, Albany, actually, Saratoga Springs. What were you selling? I was calling on grocery store managers, um, selling Duncan Hines cake mix, Crisco shortening, Pringles potato chips, the original Pringles potato chips, the red one in the can that basically tasted like cardboard <laughs> and you know and grocery store managers uh, you know they, I, I say to everybody they come in two flavors they're either 65 and been at the pinnacle of their career since they were 21 or they're 21 and they're going to be at the pinnacle of their career until they're 65 I mean grocery store managers that's a life yeah. and they grocery stores work on such small margins. I mean, if you're making 3% margin as a grocery store, you're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're intense. It's intense. Um, and it was great training. You know, I learned how to sell. Yeah. And, and how to, to read people, talk to them. Well, you, you very quickly have to understand their needs versus yours. Um, you learn very quickly. If, you, if you're not really attuned to their needs and how their store works and what they are trying to do, they won't even talk to you because they 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 are focused. It makes me want to ask you a personal question. Are you married? Oh, yes. Yeah, and for a long time? I'm on my second, and both have been for a long time. Um, my first marriage was 17 years, and this marriage has been 18 years, actually. Good for you. And I bet you uh, you stay out of trouble, um, largely in what you I'm reading the signals, and I know what to say now because I need you to buy some shortening from me. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Crisco shortening, yeah, it was it was fascinating. It was interesting. I, you know, but that's that's how I I accidentally ended up in the pharmaceutical business. I was in a grocery store, one of the first stores that actually had a pharmacy. It was an experimental store in upstate New York, mm-hmm. and I was talking to the store manager about putting Pringles, a big end, you know, end tower of Pringles with beer next to it and showing him how much profit he was going to make and how it was going to sell. And I was going to put a big sign up above it and all that. And there was a guy standing in the corner watching me. And it was a little disconcerting because I didn't know he had a suit on and a tie. And afterwards, he comes up to me, he says, you know, I'm from Johnson and Johnson. I'm from Ortho Pharmaceutical. We're looking for great salespeople. And I, he gave me his card and said, I'd like you to talk to my boss. And like, I don't know, three, four weeks later, I was working for J&J in the pharmaceutical business. No kidding. You know, it's interesting. That's the, um, that's the sales version of the, um, somebody seeing you in the mall and going, you're so pretty. Have you ever considered being a mom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, don't, I didn't get that. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, it's interesting. And was that odd? In the moment, even then, were you just like, wow, this is a strange situation? It was, but it was, it, it was, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. It was Johnson & Johnson. You know, remember, yeah. I came from a little bitty town in upstate New York where, you know, in a county where there are more cows than there are people. 
actually working working for Procter and Gamble, and now I'm going to go work for J and J. J and J was the most respected company in the world at that time. Right now, you would open a medicine cabinet. I imagine they made almost everything in it. Yeah, and beyond. So it was it was the opportunity of a lifetime. It's excellent. I I have to tell you that you know as you and I were getting ready to speak, it kept running through my head. How do you become a CEO? Because I kept thinking that's not something a kid from high school says to himself. Like, I'm going to go to college and become a CEO. Um, you know, I'm going to run a company. I'm going to make all of the decisions. Everything's going to filter through me. Like that, I mean, if you were thinking that when you were 12 or 13, you probably had a mental illness and they would have filtered you out by then. Yeah. A uh, little too great <laughs> thoughts for a small child. And so there's no CEO track in college. There's no, and I thought, I wonder if this man's not going to tell me a story of, you know, finding something, doing it well, moving to something else, seeing something, jumping around it. It's so interesting that this is the way I, I look at my, my wife sometimes. And I realize that where she is was never once on purpose. You know, she just took a job because she needed a job and she did her best and someone noticed and it, blah, blah, and it just kept going. And I wonder how many people actually have similar stories like that. Well, that's what I said earlier. I, you know, I just keep, as a younger person, I just kept my head down and did my job. And my, I was lucky. I worked for people who they, you know, you do your job, they take care of you. So I never had to ask for a raise. I never had to ask for a promotion. I did my job and those opportunities presented themselves because I was in an environment where that's the culture. You take care of the people who are performing. Right. Um, and I, I moved up in that company and then, you know, do you foster that now where when you're in charge is that is that a culture that you try to keep moving because I think some people would hear that as generational but I don't think it is. I think it's I think it's cultural at a company. It, yeah, it's very much cultural and it's something that we foster a great deal. Um over the years I've I've taken from every company I've worked for and every job I've had and different opportunities. It's funny you say, you know, I'm going to be a CEO. I'm going to make the decisions that when you're a CEO, you very seldom actually make decisions if you're a good one, because you should have an organization that decisions are made at the level that they're, that's appropriate. Um, if, if you end up, if I end up in a situation where people are saying, well, we got to see what Paul thinks before we do that. It's like, that's, we're about to fail. Um, I find out about a lot of decisions and because of the culture that we foster and that I foster nine out of 10 decisions are usually pretty good ones. Yeah. Now it's, it's funny. You made me, I'm from Philadelphia originally. You made me think of the Super Bowl a couple of years ago where there's that great tape of the, the quarterback running over to the head coach of the Eagles in a, in a, an incredibly intense scoring possible situation. He just goes, you want to run this play? And the coach goes, yeah, sure. Go run that play. And it was just like, yeah. it was just, wow. He trusts him. He knows what he's thinking. It's amazing, you, you know, and, and I, so I, I take your point. Well, trust is, I, I'm not a believer that trust is earned. I, if I hire somebody, it means I've, I believe that they're the right person and I'm going to trust them. You can only lose trust in my world. Um, so I just think it's a different approach. Gvoke is an easy-to-use, pre-mixed, pre-filled, pre-measured liquid glucagon. All you have to do is open the foil pouch and inject it. Gvoke does not require refrigeration. It's available in two doses for kids and adults, and there's a simple two-step process to administering it. 
I have seen a seizure from low blood sugar and take it from me, it is a harrowing moment. What you need in that situation, more than anything, is something reliable that's easy to use. It doesn't require a ton of steps because that is a, you guys have heard me talk about on the podcast before, but it is a crazy situation. When someone is having a seizure and you feel like you're what stands between them and further harm, you want something that just works. And Gvoke is that thing. Open the pouch, inject the glucagon. You did it. To learn more about Gvoke, go to gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juicebox. When you get to that link, you can actually order Gvoke right now today through PillPack, or you can take some time to understand what Gvoke is. So the next time you go to your doctor, you can tell them, I'd like to use this glucagon. It's pre-mixed, it's pre-filled. I think it's going to be easier for me to use. I've read up on it. It's definitely what I want. You'll have some confidence when you go to the doctor. You'll know what you're talking about. So go to the link, check it out, make yourself familiar with what Gvoke is, and then you can decide if it's right for you. Arden and I just made the switch at her last endocrinologist appointment, and I think if you take a look, you might want to do the same. Gvoke.com forward slash juicebox, or the links in your show notes, or juiceboxpodcast.com to find out more about the world's first pre-mixed, pre-filled, liquid-stable glucagon. Now let's get back to Paul and find out about the rest of his crazy whirlwind life. I think it's opposite of what most people do. I think most people come in cynical and say, you know, you go ahead, show me. And if you're saying, look, I, I try, you know, I, I saw you, I believe in what you said to me. Now go ahead and do it. That's, um, I think that's the way you build. Yeah. Well, we have, like I said, I've taken from a lot of companies in this company and to some degree in my previous company, but in this company more than any, we we have one sheet of paper. It's got four boxes and and it's got a, a, a series of behaviors in each box. And what what I've said is, if we can if we can behave this way, we will build a great company we can be proud of. And if we do that and serve our customer well in the process, we'll, we'll have a great company. We'll be very successful. You know, we don't have goals that are about um, dollars. We have goals that are about the kind of company we're going to build, the way in which we're going to serve the customer, and then all that other stuff will happen. Yeah. Now, I, I talk to people a lot um, about management of diabetes and use of insulin and everyone always wants to know, like, tell me what to do. Like, where do I, how much do I use? When do I use it? How do I get my A1C to come down? Like, it's always very point. And I tell them constantly, that's not what you want to be doing. You need to find the tools, the right tools, learn how to use them. And then all the things mm -hmm. that you want will just happen. And you won't even have to, you know, wring your hands every three months. Like, I hope my A1C, I hope is it, you know, just, it just sort of happens when you're using the right tools. It's so it's, right. It's so fast. It's about behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The basic, behaviors. The basics of most success in any kind of situation, they're all really very similar. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, um, that's really cool. So, all right, so you're at J&J, &J, you're a young man, you've been plucked out of the grocery store, <laughs> I mean, probably smelling like pastrami and pretty happy this guy found you. Um, and did you just go right into sales again at J&J? Yeah, I, I was a sales rep in a the territory, then, you know, sales trainer, then a district manager, 
in Chicago and a regional manager out in San Francisco. I was there for like 12 years. I left J&J and went to Baxter, actually. It was a good move. Interesting how this happens, because I see this happen a lot too. So you gain a lot of broad experience with a large company, and then suddenly to a smaller company, you're you're like the hive mind. You've seen every little little corner of the business, and you kind of have experience in, in a lot of different places. Yeah, well, it was a. I went to. It was a. Baxter's a medical products company, fairly big. Years ago, it was a, a combination of Baxter and American Hospital Supply. Once upon a time. Okay. Um, but I was actually in a small division, so didn't have any. Didn't really have the answers yet because I went from selling pharmaceuticals, detailing doctors about drugs, to a division of Baxter that was called Caremark at the time. Caremark at that point in time was a home infusion therapy company, which means that you, instead of putting a patient in the hospital to get an IV of antibiotics, for example, okay. you send a nurse to the home and you do it in the home. Um, but that business, you actually run it. You're running kind of like a hospital without walls. You take the assignment of benefits for a patient. You bill and collect on their behalf. You do the therapy. You, you do everything. You just don't have a structure that they come to. Correct. And, and the learning, I learned how that health, I learned how the healthcare business actually worked by, by being in a service business as opposed to just selling drugs. And then I, I took a detour from there. I met a gentleman who had an advertising agency in the pharmaceutical healthcare business. And he said, I got a lot of really good advertising people. I've got a lot of marketing people, but I don't know, have anybody in my company that understands how pharmaceutical companies and medical products companies work. I actually went to work in that advertising agency for a few years, launching drugs all around the world and, and coaching, I mean, consulting with clients on how the healthcare business actually worked. And back then that was, you know, in the, late 80s, early 90s, it was um, the advent of managed care. And what companies didn't realize is they weren't managing care. They were managing money. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was all about the, you know, the, the, the movement of money in healthcare. So if you understand what they're trying to do you know, as a hospital from a financial perspective, then you understand how your services and or products fit into their world better. When you look today at healthcare, do you and and you look at your job? Do you see, like you know, you talked earlier about when you're in sales, you have to understand what the needs are of the of the person buying. So now I'm assuming you need to understand not only the needs of your customers and what what they require from you, but you have to understand how to navigate the healthcare world. And do you do you find yourself just saying? I'm going to get in this canoe and I know how to get through this, these rapids, or do you try to reshape the rapids at the same time? Like how much of that do you see as your responsibility to move the things in the right direction for the future and for versus, or maybe not versus, but for the, the patients? Yeah, that's a great question. Over the last two decades, what I've come to believe is that with intense focus on the patient um, that's the only way you're going to truly navigate what's going on in healthcare because 
the controlling factors of healthcare delivery to a larger and larger degree are all about money and less about care. And, you know, having been in, you know, big pharma and then in small companies and, you know, started a couple of companies, I, my focus is on if I'm going to do something, if I'm going to build a company, it's going to be around products that can change healthcare for the better, products that can positively impact patients' lives, potentially save lives, and reduce their overall cost of care. If I can't do those three things, I don't want to do it because it, it just the, the world of healthcare right now is just too difficult to do anything otherwise. I had no idea what you were going to say. The conversation led itself there, and I realized as you were speaking a moment ago, the only reason you're on the podcast is because that's the vibe I got from the people you hired who reached out to me originally. And, and I get... I get pinged a lot by a lot of people. And they're like, you know, they want to be on the podcast or buy an ad. And most of them I turn down. And that's because, to me, the podcast isn't about making money. The podcast is about serving the listeners so they can live, you know, healthier lives with type 1 diabetes. So I only really let people in who I have that experience with. And it's um, it's just fascinating because you and I really haven't spoken before this, that my vibe of what was going on at your company is, is really your goal. And, um, so it's, com it's completely obvious, you know, to, to, Oh, absolutely. It's, it's very, very interesting and, and satisfying for me, actually, just a moment. Like when you were speaking, I thought, Oh, I was right about this guy. Thank God. And <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. I mean, it, it is, it's an important part of it's, it's critical. I, you know, I wouldn't be doing this if I couldn't do that. I, you know, I came out of retirement to do this and, it's about, like I said, it's about building a great company that people can be proud of. And, and that the word, the greatness comes from the ability to do everything I just said. How did that, how, how does that happen? So you're retired, retired, like sitting at home on the patio retired or just in between jobs and not in a hurry to get another one? How, what was the situation? No, two years retired. I was retired, retired. Um, I had been approached about numerous companies and CEO positions, and I wasn't terribly interested. Two of my former, one of my former investors and another investor that I knew well from the, the world of healthcare investing called me, um, and then they reached out to me through a third party to say, please just come talk to us. Come look at this company. Um, this is a little bitty group of people. They've got this cool technology, and it needs a reboot. And, you know, um, so as a favor, I, I spent some time evaluating um, what Saris was at that time. And so you just sort of came in and consulted a little bit, saw the, the landscape, and were thinking maybe you'd help them in a, in a certain direction or give them up some pointers, but then you ended up staying. Well, no, not, not consulting. I just was, I was doing diligence. I was looking at it, you know, to say, okay, what is the substance of the technology? What can it do? Um, is it well protected from an intellectual property perspective? Can, can you really build drugs around it? Um, and what I found was, was fascinating. It, you know, very simple yet elegant technology in terms of formulating, taking old drugs that are not stable in solution um, and formulating them into liquid stable products that are way more useful for patients um, 
in many different therapeutic areas. The very first area we're in is the world of diabetes and you know um, hypoglycemia, but the, the technology can go in a lot of places. And I saw the opportunity to build a company. Um, there were a lot of people in the Chicagoland area that were, um, I thought, would enjoy coming back together and working together again. So I said, and, and truth be told, I spent about a month, I spent about three or four months evaluating, and then I spent one month building a new plan for the company. And I presented it to the board of directors and said, you know, here's the plan, and here's how much money that's going to take if you're on board with the plan and you're willing to either put in or allow me to go raise the money necessary, here's the company we're going to build. And they said, absolutely. Um, and f- funny story, I kept saying, well, but we'd need this and we'd need that and we need that. And they kept saying yes. So at a certain point, I couldn't say no. <laughs> you thought maybe, maybe, I can, maybe I can talk them out of this. <laughs> if, I, if I threw enough stuff in front of them, they'd, they'd eventually say no. I launched a drug once upon a time called Celebrex. Are you familiar with you ever heard of that? Yeah, of course. So Celebrex, before to bring that drug to market, I think was somewhere on the order of $1.2 billion. Just to get it in, out the door. Before the first capsule was ever sold. Wow. So what do you do? You just put it next to beer so that people see it? <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that easy. Paul's got a brilliant sales plan. If you need glucagon that's uh, liquid stable, yeah. it'll be at the beer store right next to the Miller Lite. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've. I'm sure you'll adapt your thoughts. But uh, that's yeah. Can I ask you what about? Because let me be like blunt for a second. You guys are making a really boring drug. It's just the, it's the it, inside of the diabetes world. It's not something you hear people clamoring about, right? Like it's not. I don't know what I mean. It's not sexy. Like, oh, it's a CGM that tells me which way my blood sugar is moving or great insulin that does. You're talking about something that I think most people think of as that red box that sits in my drawer. I never use. It goes bad and I throw it away or donate it to my kid's school so they can learn how to mix the powder with the liquid. Like, and, And having heard your life experience, I'm interested in what you saw that in those few months when you were there looking that made you think this is something that people need and this will be successful? Yeah. Um, that's a great question because you know, most people would look at it and say it's boring. First and foremost, there are five and a half million people in the United States taking insulin mm-hmm. every day. The, the vast majority of them at some point, sometime, somehow, sooner or later, are going to have a serious hypoglycemia that requires rescue. I look at that and I say, oh my God, the current form factor is almost impossible to use. Um, Only about 20% of those people actually have glucagon when almost all of them should have it. Then you look at it and say over 27,000 people die of severe hypoglycemia every year in this country. Totally unnecessary. Totally unnecessary. Over 250,000 emergency room hospitalizations for severe hypoglycemia every year. Totally unnecessary. And the cost associated with all of that, totally unnecessary. Mm -hmm. When if you could build a better glucagon, one that is liquid, stable, ready to use, 
you know, you can keep it in your nightstand, you can keep it, you know, in your backpack. It's like if you look at allergies, you know, severe allergies, mm-hmm. a fraction of like maybe five to 7,000 deaths a year. Because of EpiPens? Because of the advent of a useful product, right? An epinephrine product that's easy to use, easy to administer, stable at room temperature, et cetera. You're saving lives. You are reducing costs. You're making it a lot more convenient for people. Um, why wouldn't you do that? And the thing that's even more interesting, if you look at the diabetes community, the general consensus, the education that's happened where physicians are saying, well, you should, you know, you shouldn't use glucagon until you pass out, which is totally wrong. You should use glucagon before you pass out. You know, people always say, well, you know, why can't you just use juice boxes and glucose tabs? It's like, yeah, okay, absolutely. Do all that. When those don't work, when you are at the point of, I don't know what's going to happen next, a two-step convenient take the cap off, give yourself a shot of glucagon, is a life-saving experience. Yeah, Paul, I have to tell you, from from my perspective, what you're saying resonates because, you know, and I can give you some examples. So my daughter's 15 now. She's had type 1 diabetes since she was 2. When she was first diagnosed, we got into a situation where we just gave her too much insulin. We didn't know what we were doing yet. She had a full-on seizure. She was, you know, incoherent and grunting and, you know, couldn't see and talk and everything. And I and I am I, I've told this story a number of times before, and it was one of the reasons why I was comfortable having you on because I knew when I told it to you, the people who listen would know that I wasn't just saying this because you were here. We are laying on the floor, you know, sitting on the floor. My daughter's on the floor. My wife is working on glucose gel, trying to get it open, and I'm holding glucagon. And in that moment, I could not, for the life of me, remember what anyone told me about reconstituting it. I didn't know, and I and I couldn't do it. And we brought her out of the seizure another way because we just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And when it was all over and I had time to reflect on it, what I remembered most is that when someone handed it to me initially, they said, oh, this is glucagon. It's in case you get incredibly low. It's like a life-saving thing. You'll never need it. And as soon as they said that, I guess my brain just went, oh, we'll never need this. And I just, so much was going on in our life, I did not really have the bandwidth to start learning things I didn't need, you know? And so I just didn't. Uh, it It's funny, even when you go to explain it to somebody, you're like, hey, well, you know, you take this. So there's this powder in this vial here, and then there's this liquid in this syringe. You want to take the liquid, shoot, and as you're doing it, you're like, oh my God, if this ever happens, this babysitter is not going to figure this out. And moreover, and probably most importantly, we don't carry it with us. It's not, oh, it's not, yeah. it doesn't lend itself to something you keep with you. And, and I'm excited for something that does. Um, it, and, and that's, so that's what you saw when you went down there that day you saw, you saw the, the future of, of what this could all be. Yeah. And I did quite a bit of research and I went out, I actually went out and talked to doctors. I went out and talked to patients who were, you know, diabetics and said, you know, how do you do this? And I remember my grandmother was a diabetic and I remember my mother giving her shots. And, but I, you know, I don't even think, I don't even know if there was such a glucagon even existed at that time, but I just tried to, I went out and listened and said, oh my God, there is a, in my mind at the time, there's a critical need here. And, and the, the community doesn't understand 
that there they could be there could be something better. For me, it was back to what I said before: an opportunity to change the way medicine is practiced, an opportunity to save lives, and in doing so, the net net is going to be less cost to the system. So the company's been in existence for how long? Well, the company was started by the chief scientist as almost, you know, like skunk works in his back, you know, in his, in his workshop years ago, like 10 years ago. Um, the company, as it's constituted today, you know, um, really starting to do serious research and putting products into development, probably about five or six years. The initial scientist, do you know what led him or her to work on this? He's our chief scientist today, Steve Prostrelsky. He um, he was in a company where he was a formulation chemist, formulation scientist, working on different kinds of things. Um, and he, you know, one of his areas of interest was um, products that are not stable in solution or not soluble. And he developed a an approach chemistry um, where he can put um, liquids which are not water based into a formulation, get the water out, and in so doing, you create a much more stable product. It can it can it's fine at room temperature for like two years. And there's a lot of products that require reconstitution, that, that mixing piece that you're talking about, where you've got a powder and you've got a liquid and you mix it up and then you've got the drug that you're going to administer. When that's a water-based solution, it usually is not stable when it's in solution. So it degrades very quickly. So you know, if you could take that kit that you describe and mix it up and have it in the syringe and carry it around for a couple of years, I think you'd find that, you know, a lot more of those five and a half million diabetics would actually have glucagon on hand. I think so too. And, and I wouldn't have to be buying them over and over again as they expired. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. People say, well, you know, um, I, I don't know if I'll use it. And I said, well, I tell you, people with severe allergies, my grandson, you know, six EpiPens, um, when they, when they're expired, they go buy six more because it's not, it's not the, the constant. You're not going to use it all the time, but it's that one time that you better be prepared for. I had somebody the other night, a physician, who said, well, you know, I've, I've only had to use glucagon twice in my life. And I, I, I was stunned. I said, so glucagon saved your life twice. Why wouldn't you get one of these better devices so you have it on your person? It's interesting. Right? It's interesting the way they think about it. I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I think it's like, you know, it's like car insurance almost. Like you're not planning on hitting somebody, but, you know, the day it happens, you know, for whatever reason. And I talk about it in diabetes that way as well. As, you know, the idea of if you could plan for when something was going to go wrong, then it would never go wrong. You, you, you know, like, like you, you know. Yeah. What you went through as a parent – Parents should never have to go through. Well, I, I have to tell you, it's one of the worst moments of my life, like hands down. It really, it's up there in my top 10. I wish these, this didn't happen to me. It's experience that I could have gone my whole existence without having. Uh, and I'm, I'm even liking the idea that 
Arden could keep one on her. In the other setup, it doesn't really lend itself. Like anybody can figure out how to just, you know, push the plunger, but the rest of it is off-putting. And then you you also have to keep in mind that that process needs to be simplified because it's possible that while you a, you know, a, a, a bystander or a friend or a parent is trying to figure this out. There's a person who you know or love having a seizure. That 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 could be the situation. That uh, that makes thinking a lot harder. I can tell you from uh, from experience. You know, you're not you think you're like all calm and cool. I remember afterwards, I said to my wife, I'm like, I think I handled that pretty well. And she's like, Oh, you were out of your mind. You don't even know. And I was like, <laughs> She's like, yeah. You weren't doing well at all. In case you were wondering, I was like, Oh, I thought I was. You know. Um, it it It's a rare individual. It's a rare individual that is calm in a crisis. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, there are very few people that in a crisis, they, they go to a place that is very calm, very deliberate. Um, that's not your normal. That's not your average human being. I like the idea of anything that takes away steps or need to think or, you know, possibility of dropping something or that, that any, all that is better. And I'll tell you what, not that this isn't incredibly exciting, but as you were speaking, what I really heard was, this process that your lead scientist came up with has other applications. Oh, absolutely. We, 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 we were, we're building better drugs in two or three other therapeutic areas as we speak. That's excellent. That is very cool. Well, I have a ton of questions for you that are more nuts and bolts, but I think we're out of time, honestly. So either I'm going to get you to come back at some point or I'm going to have whoever you think is the best person to talk to about the real you know, the real use strategies behind it. And, and, and there's part of me that really wants to ask you about closed loop systems, but I'm assuming you're a publicly traded company. You're going to like shoo away my question. So I'm not asking you about that. Um, unless you, unless you want to talk about it, Paul, <laughs> we will have the only liquid stable glucagon. So if there's a system that works, we've, we've now, what you now have mm -hmm. Not to take too much time, but what you now have is the real innovation here is a liquid-stable glucagon. You can use it in all kinds of ways, not just rescue. Um, so if somebody can perfect a, a two-hormone pump system, it needs glucagon and insulin. Now you finally have the only liquid-stable glucagon. So. Yeah, so we'll see how the we'll see how it all evolves. If you're building one of those systems, uh, head over to Chicago. Uh, look for the building that says Pringles on it, and that's where, <laughs> that's, where that's where they'll be. Can I ask you? And and if you can't say, I understand. But I'm assuming right now that your FDA clearance for an emergency situation. Are you planning on trying for a therapeutic? Like you know, instead of injecting the entirety of the the dose if say i was just in a situation where i had the flu and my blood sugar was stuck at 50 and it just kind of wouldn't move and i want to put in a tiny bit of the product would it is there are you thinking about that over there we're testing it in all of those applications so um if you're if you want to exercise you have to go through an incredible process to not have your glucose go too low we're we're in clinical studies on using glucagon, our glucagon, in small doses before um, ex exercise. Okay. We're studying our glucagon in continuous infusion for people who don't recognize their hypoglycemia symptoms. That, you know, that's the classic person who is one minute just fine, the next minute in a car accident. Mm -hmm. um, 
you can reboot with continuous infusion of glucagon for about a month. We believe you can reboot the system. Um, we're studying in non, these are not diabetics. Post-bariatric surgery, people get severe hypoglycemia after certain kinds of meals. Um, we believe by using a little bit of glucagon after that meal, you can prevent severe hypoglycemia. So we've got a research project going on there. Um, like I said, with liquid-stable glucagon, you can address a multitude of other conditions. And like you said, you know, what is mini-dosing? How does that work? Um, can, you, can you give yourself a little bit of glucagon for different things? We're studying it. We have four clinical programs ongoing right now. That's a, that's very encouraging. That's excellent. Yeah, uh, you know what? The one thing I didn't ask you—it's so funny. I, I, who named the company, and how how do you guys say it? Different people in the company say it different ways. Some people say it Zerus, and some say Zerus. The original name was by the chief scientist um, using a similar rationale to Xerox, which was dry printing. It's not really dry because it's still a liquid, mm -hmm. but it's without water. So his, he, he said, you know, Xerus is for dry drugs, um, or like Xeriscaping, et cetera. I, I uh, so that's where, he came, that's where he came up with it. I'm never in favor of letting the really smart people do the creative stuff, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> you never let a scientist name the company, but it was already done. <laughs> you know, it's, and what's the name of the glucagon? Gvoke. Gvoke, glucagon evoke. It evokes your your glucagon from your liver. Now, see, now we had a marketing person involved. I see. What <laughs> there we go. It's interesting. Yeah. I would ask you more about it, but it's it's fascinating. I don't think people understand either that the FDA has really strict rules on what you can even name drugs, and and drug names go through a lot of so that they can't be confused with something else. And like, there's a lot that goes on that I, I think nobody really hears. Paul, I really genuinely appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. In a few months, we're going to have someone back on to talk a little more about Gvoke, more of the nuts and bolts about how it works, the science of it, and the use. But for now, I just thought it was interesting to hear from Paul and find out how the leadership of a company that brought you the world's first liquid-stable glucagon thought and how they got to that thinking. And moreover, I think Paul was just an interesting guest. We don't often get to talk to people like this, right? Really break down who they are and where they came from. Gvoke is a prescription medicine used to treat very low blood sugar in kids and adults with diabetes aged two years and above. Gvoke is the first ever liquid glucagon. It is pre-mixed, pre-filled, pre-measured, and ready to use. No refrigeration is needed. Gvoke has been approved in two formats, a pre-filled syringe, and an auto injector. Visit gvoglucagon.com forward slash juice box to learn more.